You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card. And you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. Clear the aisles. The projectionist has Smicha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzchak Kolakowski and the whole Kolakowski brood as we speak about films that were directed, created, so to speak, by women. Because do you know what? Since 1986 or so, uh, this month of March has been dedicated as Women's History Month. It started off as Women's History Week, and then it became Women's History Month and the whole month of March, I guess. I don't know exactly, Yitzchak, why people need to know about women's history, because history of women is the history of men. But as we say, history is sometimes his story. So this is worthwhile, as everybody else is doing it, to speak about women's contributions uh, in filmmaking, and specifically um, uh, women that aren't that well known in terms of what they contributed. Obviously, film geeks know everything we're going to talk about tonight, but our audience might not know. So we've got uh, three film directors that we want to speak about who each of them really uh, made a very strong impression, were very important for the history of movies in your pick, so to speak, uh, Mabel Norman. Mabel Norman. Uh, and by the way, I just want to tell you that before you get started, I was just I just spent about an hour or so in Staten Island. I don't know if that was where Mabel Norman the place where she lived, but that yeah, I know she, she, was born in Staten Island. she was born in Staten Island. I was just there. I spent the last hour there and I was thinking about how she is probably Staten Island's first famous uh, movie star. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense because there, were, there weren't that many movies before that. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. There weren't that many right. movie stars before that. So. Right. Yeah. And um, she, and she was a star at, at a point. She really was, you know, she filled the screen in many ways. She wasn't Clara Bow in terms of that sex appeal, but she had a lot going for her. And she was a, a very important uh, person in those early films. She made so many, a countless number of these. I don't even know if we know how many of shorts she made, um, but uh, everything's silent. I don't think she ever did anything in talkies, right? She died before the talkie era began, correct? She died just as it began. And she uh -huh. was already, she had, she had had such a, a tragic and and really scandalous life 
that by that time she was already she was already not able to get any work. She tried to get into um, to Broadway by the end, but that, that also didn't work. England's version of vaudeville uh, that Chaplin and others were part of. Um, she really came into film, you know, you know, full, you know, just that was like her first major thing was actually in the uh, in the 19, I guess, around 1910 or 12. That was her first. She just was on the screen. Um, and in those days, it's called she, she was a model before that as a child. But uh, she was a child model. But but it's not like she did acting or she was part of the uh, she had necessarily perfected her comedic antics. Uh, she really was a pioneer you know, with D.W. Griffith and Max Sennett, it was uh, her lover or whatever. Um, and, and and she really is one of the, uh, I guess, unsung heroines of of this whole medium called film for entertainment, right? Absolutely. She was definitely a pioneer. And she was not only an actress, but she was what, what I really wanted to bring up, which I thought was of historical interest, was that she wrote some of the stories and also directed several films, including uh, some of Charlie Chaplin's first films, including the first film that he, that was filmed. I always heard that the first time that Charlie Chaplin appeared in, in his famous Little Tramp character was a movie called The Kid Auto Races in Venice, meaning in Venice Beach. And at, not, not in Italy, it was in California, but rather... Uh, the they had filmed before that one, and he only appears in that very briefly, just walking around, not really doing anything. But before that, he was in that the little tramp outfit in a film that was actually directed by Mabel Norman called Mabel's Strange Predicament, which I guess we both watched today. Right. Yes. Yes. You you definitely threw that egg at me that easter egg so to speak at me um, i just want to say one thing it's before you you describe it and i have some comments about it as well is that the the keystone comedies what max Sennett was behind they, they wanted a certain sort of fluidity and uniformity of all those shorts so it was it was hard to figure out exactly because they don't the, the 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 cards do not indicate who the director is so it isn't like later films where that's the last card you're going to see directed by. So a lot of this is really based on, you know, filmographer's research that she had directed it because it's not she didn't get credit, so to speak. I think these films, especially these shorts, I, I, I wonder if it was sort of like a team effort, this type of direction that was going on. Um, it was it was almost like the you know, director wasn't. But it wasn't like Hitchcock that the actors are cattle and director was like running the show. I, I think direction was less uh, distinct and specific than it is than it is in our minds today. Definitely. Um, I, I don't know. I, I get that feeling. Uh, that, that, that was also, again, I, I can't quantify or qualify why I thought that, but I, that was the exact feeling that I had. Like, what does it mean exactly to be a director of a film in 1914 when you're, you know, I mean, even, even at the time, you know, there were the, you know, there were some, you know, films, you know, Griffith as, as horrible a person he was and, and the types of horrible subject matters that he glorified nonetheless was a brilliant. No, no birth of a nation. You can definitely see there's a arc 
and there's a there was obviously somebody behind the scenes screaming and telling them what the black guy should be doing and what the white girl should be doing and you know right and and, and Lincoln's assassination it just it's 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 brilliant it's you know it's, you, no it's, I, I agree with yeah. you but I think the shorts especially. And you know when the title card comes on, you look. It, it's called a farce, right? A farce comedy. Um, I, the version I saw was, I think, a French print. So it, it actually said Charlot. I don't remember Charlot and, and, and hotel or something. Right, because they are because they're emphasizing Charlie because right. they're they're emphasizing Chaplin. But yeah. I think if if you and, look and at they the had in parentheses Mabel Strange predicament, but it was it was you know because the French, of course, they they turned Chaplin. They they always like you know long before they they long before they uh, long before they deified Jerry Lewis yes yeah, they they Chaplin was really uh, you know probably not only in in in, in France but in, in Latin America and other places but uh, yeah know. he was a, he was Mickey Mouse he was the universal symbol and and it was definitely lightning in a bottle uh, but 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 I, I think the point is is that yes Mabel Norman uh, directed. Uh, a number of films. What direction and, means? And, and the fact that she directed Chaplin is so incredible, you know, because he he almost always directed himself. Right. So and fact and that... in fact, later that year, he actually in 1914, because we're talking about a film that came out in February 1914. Later in August, Chaplin directed himself, right. and you can see he, even the title card uh, seems to indicate that it's Chaplin's film. In fact. Uh, Chaplin, again, those, a, those are the prints that we have. I don't know if that's what was released. Hmm. You make a good point. In other words, what audiences saw on YouTube or on the Internet Archive is not the original music because there was no original music. Uh, every, uh, I guess, every theater uh, had discretion as to what sort of music they would play along with the film that was going on. I don't, I don't know what was going on in that time in 1914. I think later on there were film scores that were that were delivered as sheet music to to local theaters but that again would probably be more for the for the features these shorts i mean a lot of them probably were even just played in nickelodeons they weren't necessarily even in theaters or or they could be a mix of both you know all different types of releases you know Mm -hmm. by that time i think you know there were there was more of the theater experience but it was was not right. Necessarily... So, 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 so a lot of times, what I'm saying, it's okay. Is like the two, the two shorts that I watched today. One of them, twelve minutes. The other, twenty three minutes. I mean, I I used the YouTube, um, <laughs> uh, the YouTube valve uh, to punch it up to one point five, uh, and and because it's anyway go, it runs anyway. I think at a very quick speed because of the slapstick aspect of it. But you know, these films, the music punctuated it in a way that I'm not sure. Mabel was responsible for the director was responsible for. I, I can't imagine in any way it was I, I right, and, and and that's really part of what the later, like I said, the later hands who applied music to it. Even people, let's say, even from the last fifteen and twenty years, or from people who work on the Internet Archives. Yeah, you know, obviously we know the importance of a musical score, and the musical score in many times uh, is you know creates a a whole different aspect of the of these films, but still. There's uh, Mabel Norman's uh, the seed of creation is there. Uh, definitely her persona. It's interesting that that m- her her whole oeuvre of films. She was Mabel. In other words, you know, it's almost like you know, <laughs> it's like Tony Danza, <laughs> right? Or Bob Newhart, like you know, yeah. like, like like of course he was called. I think you know Robert Hartley or something like that. But um, 
In other words, there was something about, hey, my name. Right? In other words, like her, her, her films were a, a man of, sort of like a, a distilling aspects of herself. Uh, and, and as you, as we said, you know, Chaplin had just come over from England a couple of months earlier. And um, in, you know, in this film that, you know, filmographers have discovered. Other, other movies she'd done. It wasn't anything so incredibly special or different, but the, the touches that were there were, you know, again, I'm looking at it from the standpoint of having seen much more of Chaplin's filmography, even others that either she did with, with him or with, with Arbuckle, with others. And what was interesting about this particular film was, uh, as you mentioned as well, when as we discussed before, was that Chaplin, you know, the character of the little tramp had not really been formulated the way that that we know him from even movies that would have been like you said even a few months later he's presented here as a drunk and and a lech and uh and somebody there's a lot of lecherousness going on everywhere by the way (laughs) in 12 minutes they pack in quite a bit of of lechery uh but it's it's interesting how you know the, the one scene where she's thrown out of the She's thrown out of her room. Well, she's not rethrown. That's actually a very cute scene. And 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 and, 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 and is trying to hit on her, and she's trying to cover herself up. She's in the most sneezing of pajamas. Right, but in those days, that was considered, you know, it's sort of like a a sort of in in a way, it's I think satirical. You're right. She's in she's in white pajamas that are, you know, although you know you can see the shape of her body and her pants. It's not it's it's not like a uh, a dress. But they were very baggy pants. Yes, also. yes, very... indeed. It's it's not a negligee or anything. Well, she is a comic figure. Um, she has, uh, you know, someone who's billed as the lover um, that she's waiting for. Uh, and in the film, uh, they make pretty nice use again of animals. They have that dog that uh, sort of like a collie breed, a collie mix uh, that's sort of like allowed into the into this hotel. Uh, and she's playing with this dog. And because, you know, she went to get the ball, the dog's uh, chew toy, uh, she ends up getting locked out of her room. I think that's what you're talking about. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, 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 and Chaplin, for some reason, I, I thought it was incredible because in, in a hotel today, they would kick such a guy out. I mean, you have a guy who is called, you know, the drunk, I think is what they call him in the, in the credits. And he's just sitting in the, um, and he doesn't look like anybody of any sort of, uh, of an aristocratic nature at all. And he's falling down and all his drunk antics, which, you know, to our modern eyes seems a little bit, uh, you know, tired and overdone, but everybody in the, in the hotel is, is, is so, is so obsequious and so involved with him as if, Oh, sir, let me pick you up and let me, let me take care of you. Um, I thought that was, it, it was interesting. I don't know if that was reflective of, uh, of the times a hundred and some years ago, um, that you could have a guy more than a hundred years ago. <laughs> I'm saying like yeah, hundred and nine years ago. That's what I'm saying. Is that the way it was? Like a guy could just sit in that's, a hotel lobby. That's probably why they wanted prohibition, <laughs> right? And 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 I think I, I think the film is trying to, uh, in a way, satirize the tolerance that we have for people drinking. Um, you know, because and Chaplin does a lot of pratfalls. He falls down quite a bit, and. Um, it's interesting. I, I thought a, a, a shtick that he does 
consistently, which is his cane movements that he does. You know, um, you know, he he's twirling the cane, and the cane's always, you know hitting his hat or hitting something else hitting somebody else yeah. hitting someone else or hitting his hat or hitting somebody in the rear end um but and you're right didn't really do that in his later films as much you always had that cane you always but it wasn't wasn't it wasn't used. a weapon at all i i think part of what, what you know look the, the the quintessential pathos of chaplin you can find in the kid and the gold rush the nebuch the schlepper the schlemiel the the or in City Lights, you know, which of course is like one of the latest iterations of that person, the the unrequited love, the the sweetheart, the person of such a good neshama, the one who eventually becomes almost, you know, the barber in um, in the Great Dictator. This nineteen fourteen version, as you say, looks like the Tramp, but in, as you as you point out clearly is just really a stock trope character of of a drunk person um and it's interesting you know i i i guess if you didn't know chaplin's future would you say he's really the star of this of this little short well mabel's the star yeah i have to tell you i thought the direction was sloppy you could tell that there were certain scenes that for example she's under the bed hiding and you can tell that that was not filmed simultaneously with uh, when other people are in the room. Um, you can see that 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 she, who, if if it's, if Mabel Norman is indeed the director, it is quite primitive. Uh, I think Shoimi could do at least a, 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 almost as good of a job as that, if not better, in terms of. I, I wasn't thinking in that direction, but no, no. But again, I I was watching and saying, okay, let me see her directing qualities where you know and, and i i think you know there, it's clear a lot of things have been spliced together um in order to sort of like build this idea that her predicament is that she doesn't really mean to be in the room of this married couple um a lot of violence in this film i mean there's a Very lot of there's a lot of people choking each other and slapping each other and hitting each other and maybe that's why they called it slapstick because there's so much there's so much hitting you know <laughs> And that and that was one part of, that we both noticed of the history. She was the first comic, uh, you know, performer on film that we know of. But she really, and she's really an emblem of the tragedy of Hollywood in general. She's an extremely tragic figure. She was she was addicted to drugs. She was an alcoholic. She suffered from depression. She had many many failed uh, relationships. She died extremely young. Um, but she, she was, you know, a very historical figure who accomplished really, you know, even if it wasn't, uh, maybe if she wasn't the greatest director, she certainly was a great actress. She certainly, you know, you could see her acting. Let's talk about that for a second. Last week on my pontification of, of singing in the rain. I talked about the serious part of Singing in the Rain, and that was what was silent film and, you know, what was it that survives from silent film into talkies? And part of what Singing in the Rain posited was, uh, you know, Comden and Green, was that a lot of silent film was pantomime, was miming, uh, wasn't really true acting, and that the new technology allowed for the life of distilling the life of an energy that that wasn't there before. I, I think that that is a simplistic reading of it especially when you take a look at these shorts there's the title cards are almost uh you know are, are insignificant 
Um, there is a lot of real, like two or three title cards. Right. There's a lot of real um, emotion and and mostly comic, um, uh, you know, manic uh, expressions that are going on there. Um, so, so, so I, I, you know, when we talk about being an actor and actress, um, you know, you know, th- there clearly is. Uh, it isn't just you know miming or pantomime uh, that's happening. And and I think that you see maybe in all maybe that's true in many, most of the Senate films. Um, yeah, this one, this one didn't have that any of that pantomime in it. It was really a realistic. Uh, well, comedy. you know, I... it was it was. I'm saying like you, not realistic, but I'm just saying it was. It was something that, you know, the pratfall, the the, the kind of comedic. It was. It wasn't like a Three Stooges short where it, it was almost a fantasy world. It was the the level of suspension of disbelief to to see this wasn't that difficult. Meaning the right. anger, the anger and the violence was it was visceral and was real. Like the you know the the older wife you know choking her husband and it was it, it was the anger was palpable in a in a real way. It was still funny, but it was also kind of frightening you know was, right and, and, and i think it set the stage you know mabel's strange predicament is sort of similar to a number of other screwball comedies where somebody's in the wrong room and somebody gets locked out and someone's under the bed and you know what's going I mean, on and that's the other thing we, we we're used to seeing all these things later this this was you know one of the first times maybe we saw a lot of these things we don't know maybe i don't know maybe there were earlier things that are similar it seemed seems very run of the mill doesn't seem like anything special but it was but you know again we, when we look back at uh, you know frankenstein or dracula and compare it to things now you know well we're used to all these tropes but when it, when they first came out it was something uh, yes they de- they definitely it definitely in, in a way you know created the mold uh, that others followed, and that's really we understand that in terms of any developing technology or any sort of field. I, I think the other film that you didn't see that I did watch, uh, based on your recommendation, was called Mabel at the Wheel, and this was made I, I also. Okay, I well, if, I, I'll remind you what it is. It's basically it goes on too long. I think the twelve, thirteen minutes or uh, that uh, Mabel's. Um, Mabel's Strange right. Predicament is is almost perfect time. Uh, this one is about twenty three minutes. Uh, I, you know, I, I think it drags on a little bit too long. Um, little Chaplin is is a lot more hammy in this. Chaplin plays a villain um, who loves his bicycle and is sort of anti the car. And, and this and this film is really about uh, the rise of the automobile and about a certain type of uh, automobile race that eventually uh, occupies the second part of the film. Uh, and Mabel, um, she has the same lover that she has in, in Mabel's Strange Predicament. Uh, her lover has a, a car that is a touring car, but also doubles as a race car and is going to be involved in a, in a big race, which uh, I guess is sort of like the Indianapolis 500, where they're just going around and around. Uh, and um, for some reason, she had begun a sort of a dalliance with Chaplin's character, who uh, you know not only has the mustache but also uh, a little bit of I, I guess uh, some sort of like goat-like beard uh, jutting out of his chin, uh, along with two evil henchmen whose mustaches reach almost all the way around their head. 
um, and he has uh, he has taken Mabel for a ride on his motorized bike. It seems like, and when she falls off into the mud, um, for no fault of her own, just because they hit a bump, uh, the evil character, Chaplin's character, gets miffed that his girlfriend has ditched him. Uh, and he swears revenge against uh, her and her boyfriend uh, and spends the last half of the film trying to sabotage the race. Uh, and by kidnapping uh, her lover and not allowing him to ride his race car, and Mabel ends up, when she tries to discover what's going on, uh, she ends up going into the race, and uh, no surprise, uh, it's all they're all trying to upset her and trying to uh, uh, pour water and and other stuff and throw gas bombs. Um, there's a lot of throwing going on. A lot of people getting hit with bricks in the first yeah, part. And... Now. now that you now that you remind me of it, it's it's familiar. <laughs> okay, so this film is also ascribed to um, to Mabel Norman as a director, um, and it's interesting not only for Chaplin. Uh, people want to see the the development of Chaplin and seeing Chaplin playing a bad guy. There is a lot of, um, I would say, inventive use of of pins. Whether the pin is uh, <laughs> whether the pin is bursting the the tire or the pin is going into the posterior of a person. Uh, there's also really it makes fun of of of, of people in the crowd uh, of the spectators. Um, there is a lot of, I don't know if Keaton and Lloyd and Ch- uh, Keaton Lloyd would have loved the gags, but there are some very typical Senate, you know, Keystone gags in it. Um, I, I think there's more, uh, uh, more frenetic and interesting camera work, uh, in Mabel, Mabel at the wheel than there is in, uh, the, the earlier film, um, and again, there are some people say that she did it in combination with her her lover and her, her mentor, Max Sennett. But I think there's a little bit more of what we call, you know, the classic director type of view in Mabel at the Wheel. I can't say it's a superior film. Um, it's, it, it is interesting to see Chaplin uh, evil. <laughs> not only lecherous but actually you know you 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 could you're supposed to boo at him um i don't believe that they were you know demeaning to the women i think mabel norman especially holds her own uh she isn't just a wallflower um she hits back she punches back uh she's the hero really um I mean, that, you know, that's her life that's 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 her you know when she was later on in her life she was accused of she was she was in a hospital sick, and there was a, a jealous wife who was just trying to steal money from her and and claimed that she had some kind of affair while she was a director. A, a, a Desmond was his last name, and uh, uh, Mabel was uh, insinuated to be implied with him. And I think he he died, and there was some insinuation. He, he was, was he was murdered, and there's some insinuation that Mabel Norman might have been culpable in some way in his death. Um, it, it's clear, I think, that uh, you know Billy Wilder's um, Sunset Boulevard's heroine uh, Norma Desmond is probably uh, a, a nod to Mabel, right? Mabel Norman Desmond. Yeah, I think um, so, yeah. You know, uh, you know Hank. You know. Uh, uh, 
reaching back towards uh, that that era. So uh, I, I think if anybody is interested to discover uh, the films that she was a part of and her life uh, and history, there have she has been portrayed in popular films over the last thirty years. Uh, I noticed that. Um, Marissa Torme, Brenda Peters, and others have portrayed her in various ways. I think she's finally getting the the honor that she deserved as a pioneer. So she isn't exactly not she's exactly not well known, but I, I think probably people like Senate and Chaplin and others um, who outlived her were able to, in a way, um, diminish what she did and to make her just like a, a bit player, so to speak. I, I, yeah, that's, that's, that sounds right because it, it, she wasn't really a star. She was always in the news, usually for scandals. She died. Like I said, she died from tuberculosis. And uh, there's a question whether she was 36 or 38. It seemed that she lied about her age and she was actually 38. And uh, so again, that's all these. And, you know, she was, it's, it's well, a terrific thing that she died so young and she had such a tragic life, drug abuse, everything else. But it, it, that's that's the live fast, die young Hollywood. You know, that's, that's right. The, right. And again, sort of as frenetic and wild as some of the Senate comedies themselves, but in a first a negative way. Let's talk to about this, the, a, a bridge figure in this way from the silence to the talkies, Dorothy Arzner. Um, I was unfamiliar with her work. Um, she was a openly gay uh, director. Um, there was no question. She, she wasn't like closeted in any way. Uh, people knew about her and about her relationship with another woman. Uh, she dressed really butch. Um, and I, I can't say that I've sampled so many of her films. Uh, there is a film that she made, a very a pro, uh, a, a, a propaganda film, that she made, you know, anti-Nazi film that interests me. It was really, which I think is one of the last films she made um, is with Mur Oberon. And it's uh, basically, again, about um, uh, uh, Mur Oberon is the hero. Um, you know, they think she's, she's collaborating with the Germans, but really uh, in Norway, she's working with the underground. And it was a film that was supposed to, and Mur Oberon, of course, was uh, in the thirties was a stunning beauty. Um, that was, you know, of course, the star of Wuthering Heights and other films. Um, and uh, this film was <laughs> was hated. Uh, uh, but as you say, for years, she was one of the few Hollywood directors. You you, you point out to me off pod that you think it, it was hard to find any female directors in the 30s, 40s, besides Dorothy Arzner. I, I, I wonder how much of that had to do with the, the tragedy of, of others, you know, meaning were, were people afraid after seeing, again, we didn't, I, I guess it wasn't so well known that, that, that Mabel Norman was a director, but that was a thought that came to my mind that her tragic life maybe was the reason that, you know, there was this, this desistance of, of women being. Could be. I, I, I would posit it that as silence became more sophisticated and talkies uh became uh the the only uh, medium i think the old the good old boys started flexing their muscles and when you had studio heads and other men i think it was you know i think it was a sexist type of attitude um you know the women 
who are getting ahead using their feminine wiles, but uh, to actually direct and be in charge, this was something that uh, they didn't see as the role of of women. Um, and that might be part of it. Also, um, look, the, the film that that I want to recommend really, because I think it's it's interesting and it's it it it, it goes together in a way with uh, Mabel Strange predicament is Merrily We Go to Hell. Um it's one of the earliest screen uh, appearances of Cary Grant, but he is very, very just he's on the screen maybe for about two minutes or so, two or three minutes. Um it's got Sylvia Sidney, who was a major star at the time. Uh, I would assume the, the person who acts the most in this film, I guess, is Frederick March. And once again, we have a film about how terrible it is to be a drunk. Uh, and it's interesting, Dorothy Arzner, who was involved in a gay relationship at the time, uh, really sets this film as a critique of the modern conception of marriage, of maybe being open. This was one of the theories that was very prevalent at the time, that the Victorian age is when you have a marriage that can only be monogamous and, uh, you know, you, you, you use your hard work and work together and have a child. And and whereas the modern version of a marriage is uh, the freedom to be open, to, to dance, to party. Um, and this is a critique of that style because the principles in this film engage in, in, in such a relationship. Um, it's in a, a couple of weeks ago, Yitzhak, you mentioned that uh, a, a theme that you see in many of the Westerns is sort of an attack on the, the sophisticated urban aspect of the world versus uh, the more sylvan outdoors. This film has an, a little bit of a different dynamic of Chicago versus New York. Uh, Chicago is somehow... Uh, uh, although they're both metropolises, <laughs> Chicago is considered a little more down to earth and real than life in New York. Um, the film starts in Chicago, where um, uh, Frederick March plays Jerry Corbett, who is a columnist on a newspaper, uh, not a gossip columnist, but I guess a a, 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 a person who's sort of like Andy Rooney or maybe uh, William Sapphire writing his ideas, uh, who is at a at a dinner party that's being hosted by the Prentices, the Prentices. And this was a, a, a target of a lot of early Hollywood was these, um, the new money, people who had made money in the new industries. He was a, he was a, uh, the tin can, tin can millionaire, the person who would, who was canning all types of foods uh, for, for popular consumption. And this is how she has her money. But although he might be new money, he is very worried that people are after his daughter for her wealth. Uh, she meets at a party where she's being hit on uh, by a number of older men. She meets this young Jerry Corbett, played by Frederick March, who is getting drunk. And um, But he has wit. He has ideas. Uh, he is a playwright. When he's not writing his columns, he has ideas for for productions to be eventually done in Broadway. She falls in love with him, um, and, through, and, and, and the title of the film is repeated a number of times, Merrily We Go to Hell. And that is really the idea is that even though we seem to be struggling uh, to have a real life and to put things together, but the availability, the accessibility, this that the modern world has bequeathed to us, the freedom of time and leisure lends us to drink for some reason. 
And when we drink, we just drink to a point where we go to hell. It's fun, and that's where we're going. Um, and and Arzner really, in a way, indicates this uh, it, it, without it being such an obvious morality play. There is humor to it. There is wit to it. Um, but it is a, a, a really a scalding critique of that type of lifestyle. Um, and and, and what, it, what, what ensues is that uh, his play finally gets accepted and they move to New York and he begins a liaison openly with one of his old lovers and she recognizes that he's married and still, you know, the relationship goes on. He begs her, close the door, don't let me go. I'm having this passion. I have this desire to cheat on you. Don't let me cheat on you. She says, if that's the way you are, just go ahead and do it. And, you know, uh, the the film really, although, you know, March does a lot of the hammy acting of, of being, you know, anguish and being drunk. uh, Sylvia Sidney really, I think shows fragility. Uh, She shows how she could be in love with someone who's so hurtful to her. Uh, and there is a number of discussions about why people stay with abusive and and, and difficult people and what, what one gets from it. So it is an interesting character study. It's an interesting view, look at the world uh, of that time uh, of 90 years ago. And I think that um, uh, in a way, dis- despite the person who's making it didn't live a lifestyle that we would say was anything like Victorian or prudish, it really is an argument for the good old concept of a marriage built on love and trust between one man and one woman and and the possibility of having children. Uh, again, I, I, I like Frederick March's performance. It's a little bit over the top. Sylvia Sidney, though, is really a jewel uh, in this film. And you can check out the other films by Dorothy Arzner. Um, that's Ken the- Taylor was in it, too. Excuse me? Kent Taylor was also in it. He was in yes, Kent has a small role in it as well. Yes, uh, Kent plays a, a possible suitor of, uh, of 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 Sylvia's character of Joan. Um, uh, I, I, again, I don't. I'm not that familiar with um, with. I, I guess the the best friend character, Richard Gallagher. Um, who you might know about him uh he sort of does a he has a couple of a uh, very wonderful comedic lines about there ought to be a law and how the world needs to change um and he sort of goes along with you know the type of stupor that seemed to fill uh, the world in the 19 late 1920s and early let's end tonight with a discussion of another female great director of the late 1940s and early in the 1950s, including uh, television programs in the 1960s. Uh, she began her career as a sort of a, a, a very pretty ingenue. Uh, and uh, she had a, eventually gaining star roles in a number of films in the, in the early 1940s, Ida Lupino. She was, and, even in a, she was even in a Bird Eye Gordon movie in the 70s. Last <laughs> <laughs> week. She, she kept active. Uh, uh, those of you who aren't that familiar with her, of course, might remember her from a classic Twilight Zone episode where she actually plays a movie star who um, ends up becoming so self-absorbed in her old films that she doesn't really have any life. That was not Ida Lupino. Ida Lupino seemed to, even from the get-go, 
uh, like Gene Kelly that we spoke about last week, have a desire to get behind the camera. And um, the film that I want to recommend, uh, which has been extolled by Eddie Muller and others as a great example of film noir, uh, is uh, The Hitchhiker. Um, And it is a film I saw a couple of weeks ago. And it is a film that is full of verite and suspense. It's based on a a, a real story of a serial murderer uh, who, um, I think his name was Cook, who basically, in a more innocent time, when people used to hitchhike and people would pick them up, whether they looked like Claudette Colbert or like uh, Clark Gable, people would pick up hitchhikers consistently. And this was a hitchhiker who, after you picked him up, he would kill you right? and steal your car and dump your body somewhere. Um, eventually, he was caught. And it's it, according to you know a lot of the notes about this film, when Ida Lupino you know, had read about this person, uh, she actually went to interview him on death row to sort of get a sense of what sort of person would be doing this. What is the, the mind of a serial killer? And uh, she cast her and her, her production crew uh, cast in this film someone that I know, of course, as William Tallman, who was the district attorney in almost every single episode of Perry Mason, um, who sort of represented the law and represented what, you know, what the government was trying to do. And he lost every case, uh, but he was buttoned down and to the point. And, you know, in this film, you know, it, he actually is, one of the most, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I guess, one of the most terrifying, uh, criminally insane uh, psychopath who clearly uh, has had, although they talk about an abusive uh, childhood, he clearly, uh, his motivations are, are muddled, but, uh, but demonic as he is able to get these two fellows who are on a hunting and fishing trip. And it's Frank Lovejoy and Edmund O'Brien. Uh, Edmund O'Brien, uh, you know, is, is almost unrecognizable in this film. Uh, you know, he had a, he had a tendency uh, to mug a lot for the camera. He doesn't do it in this film. There's only one scene where he sort of erupts. And, and part of what Lupino is able to, do with her suspense is to is to not talk this film to death uh it's shot in in, in the deserts i think in new mexico and california but it's supposed to be mexico itself and there are a, a number of actors and actresses speaking spanish in this film um there is a, a recreation of mexican life in the 1950s uh some of it tawdry but most of it very uh very complimentary to life in Mexico. Yes, uh, the, the standard place where you get gas and go in for a for a cold drink is dusty and uh, it's very tough to be able to uh, to see anything similar to a, a typical diner and rest stop in the United States. But they are good, decent people. And the Mexican police are involved along with the U.S. Uh, police in, uh, in terms of capturing this wanted murderer. When it becomes clear uh, through various uh, clues that the police are able to pick up that these two guys have been hijacked by this uh, psychopath who is taking them into Mexico with the hope of getting to a certain uh, ferry on the on the coast 
in which he will make his escape to California and perhaps in that way uh, be able to uh, elude all his, uh, elude the police. There's a lot of tension in this film. Um, It is uh, shot uh, in very stark black and white. And you really aren't sure exactly how these two guys are going to make it. Um, they uh, they are, in a way, there's a little bit of a Stockholm syndrome going on. Um, there is a, a, a very subtle exploration of what makes both of them tick, of what they're about. Uh, there's also a facial deformity that William Tallman has that it, it looks like he's, he's awake when he's really asleep and you can't tell because part of his face is is paralyzed, which the the killer that the film is based on also had this sort of facial problem. Um, The film holds up incredibly. Now, again, where is Ida Lupino's vision here? Clearly, she knew how to make an exciting, gripping, small film that, you know, in a way is, is, is extremely watchable today. Is it a woman's picture? I would say Dorothy Arzner is a woman's is is putting a woman's stamp on Merrily We Go to Hell. It's interesting that Lupino, if you wouldn't tell me it was directed by a woman, it could have been directed by Edward by Edward Ulmer. It could have been directed by um, Frank Borsage. It could have been directed by anyone. Um, and, and and yet she was you know, the the auteur of, of this film. So there's many other th- things that Ida Lupino did. Um, this might be, uh, you know, the greatest film that she directed. Uh, it really, it, it's, 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 it's getting a lot of attention uh, in the last couple of years. Um, and I think really in many ways, Yitzchuk, I think it's, 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 it's fitting that we should end tonight saying, yes, women can do what men can do. Women can contribute. Women are distinctly different in so many ways, but really the ultimate celebration of them uh, in, in their history in terms of how they've added is really by the fact that they've just been competent and sometimes brilliant in terms of pushing this medium forward. And someone like Ida Lupino, who who was so used to being in front of the camera, was able to shift behind it and really swim in that medium. I think that really is a, a testament to to how addictive, <laughs> I guess, being involved in films are. And you know, it, it wasn't so much that you know that the roles had diminished that she couldn't get any parts. I mean, that probably was part of it. She was getting older. Uh, I, I think she really felt that um, she could contribute more as a director and creator uh, of a film. And um, I think. In that way, she's really a symbol for everyone, men and women, of you know pursuing things that you love and doing things that, in many ways, are built on the uh, on what has been done before, but doing it perhaps in a different way, doing it in a way where uh, you make the most of what you have. And uh, like I said, I think the the film stands the test of time admirably. So that's about it, my friends. That's our male all male. So, so my friends, watch your step on the way. I will be back after the Passover holidays. That'll be in a couple of weeks from now. Um, with films you can watch even during Sphera. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Be well.
Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.